Hey guys, the next full session audio we're bringing you is all about accessible media. You're going to hear from industry leaders like the BBC, ITV, Amazon, Apple, etc. So yeah, strap yourself in. Hi everyone, welcome to the session on media accessibility, audio description and video on demand services. We've got five panelists today. Uh, I think uh, four of them collectively represent the absolute mammoths in uh, media delivery. And uh, thank you ever so much for joining us. And we've got Mariana Lopez, Dr. Mariana Lopez from the University of York, who's done the brilliant research on enhancing audio description, which is one of the most interesting uh, research studies I've come across on audio description recently. Now, I, I know, I think it was Caroline Casey who mentioned yesterday that 2019, there's something different about 2019. It feels there is a buzz about uh, accessibility, inclusion. And I think there's definitely a buzz around media accessibility as well, and therefore, obviously, audio description. Uh, but for someone who works for um, a user organization, I think at the center of this buzz and it's, you know, this whirlwind is the end user. And in this case... Uh, it's the viewer. We have a generation of viewers now who have grown up with audio description. They are not grateful for having description, but if, when it's not there, they're very angry. So it's And they have platforms to express their disappointment. So it's hashtag furious, hashtag equality act, RNIB, what are you doing about it? Um, Thankfully, I think a lot of media providers are also understanding the importance of audio description. Uh, there is an acknowledgement, which is quite often followed off by an apology, but at least there's an acknowledgement. You know, yes, audio description is important, and we are trying, and a lot of improvements have been made. So, um, but I think at the center of this, uh, these developments will be the viewer. As I said, viewers today are not grateful. They want the 5.1 mix. They want the Dolby Atmos mix with audio description. They are more tech savvy because platforms are now more uh, more accessible. So that is going to be the challenge for uh, for broadcasters and for video on demand providers. And on that note, over to you, Nigel. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, I'm Nigel Meggett from BBC. It says they're an executive product manager, which is indeed my job title. What I actually do is um, I look after the engineering strategy for how we make audiovisual media accessible, both on broadcast and online. And a lot of the time, what that means is subtitles and audio description and, and that kind of thing. And occasionally, it stretches out into other areas as well. Um, the BBC is in a really kind of interesting place, kind of in this room and in the world generally, because we're paid for... Um, uh, by what most people regard as a, a tax, uh, and most people in the country um, uh, have to pay a license fee. We have a sort of a need uh, to represent the UK's audience, all of the audience, um, and uh, so I take that on board as part of my role, um, and that means encouraging the use of open standards and uh, and this kind of thing to try and make it easy for everybody to make an accessible experience, but it also means understanding the needs. So sometimes people will propose technical solutions for um, accessibility, which I don't think actually do meet the audience's needs. And I feel like it's my job to stand up in the forums 
where that's been proposed and say, guys, that's not good enough. You need to do this extra thing as well. Um, and so I do that um, a lot. So I, my, my role in the BBC is both internally to try and do projects and make sure things are working well and make continual improvements, but also externally to work with a lot of different standards organizations to try to make sure that what we want to do for our audience, because our audience needs it, is not just available to us, but it's available to other providers as well. And that's really important. Um, from a content perspective, the BBC um, in the UK, the public service BBC in the UK, subtitles 100% of the programmes on, on all the main channels, uh, and that's as per kind of regulatory requirements, but we've been doing that ahead of when those were needed, and we usually try to do that. Um, more than 20% of programmes are audio-described, um, and that's that's far in excess of the, the regulatory requirements. And we and we exceed 5% of signed content as well. So um, we take it really seriously. And now I'm, I'm clearly talking here about the, the programs that we make. There's a whole load of other content that we make, audio only or clips that are, or short videos that are online and things. And we've got a long way to go with those. And that's, that's recognized. And part of what I do is try to encourage that and make that more and more uh, uh, work better and better. And also to make sure that when we get when we make subtitles for a program, we try and make it available on as many platforms as possible. And we've got a couple of uh, of outliers there, unfortunately for us, which where they don't work properly, and we are continually trying to work through that and make improvements. And sometimes, sometimes the technology is complicated and big, and the tools are not necessarily there to just take off the shelf and use. And um, and it takes us quite a while. So um, my goal is to obviously, and the, my aspiration certainly is to for every bit of content that we make, make it once, make the accessible components of it as needed and be able to distribute those and have them play back everywhere. Um, we can't always achieve that, obviously. Um, and we're, we're always trying to try to work towards that. So an example of uh, something that I did, um, which you may have seen me, a couple of people have mentioned here, they saw me at the Global Accessibility Awareness Day uh, event that um, that the BBC put on earlier this year, where I talked with uh, my colleague Ed White about a widget that we created for adjusting the size of subtitles on our web-based player. And that's great, but it's only on the web player at the moment, so that's the kind of thing where I'm talking about, well, there are some, there's some uh, unequal um, uh, uh, feature sets on different platforms. Um, another thing that we are aware of is, is with AD, the navigation experience is not always great on all platforms, so it's you know we 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 become aware of these things and we try and address them, but um, it's a complicated tech stack, so it's it's not a quick instant fix. It's a lot easier to describe the problem than the solution sometimes. Um, and another one is player media controls or media player controls, the things like the fast forward, rewind, play, pause, that kind of stuff. Um, especially on touch screens, people say, well. Maybe there are some improvements to be made there. So we're looking at that. That's internal stuff, just a flavor of it. Um, external stuff, um, lots of open standards work. So particularly things like in the World Wide Web Consortium. Because this is a weird thing, right? So I'm talking about the UK audience's need. But in order to meet the UK audience's need, the only way that that is going to happen in a cost-effective way for everyone is if we affect the global standards. Because... Look, we're at Google here. They make a Chrome browser. Lots of other participation. Lots of other people here will have their their browsers. They will make one thing that they use globally, 
I'm sitting next to Sarah here from Apple. Obviously, they don't make a thing that it's different in different countries. They make one thing, and that's everywhere. So if we can't affect that one thing, then uh, we can't we can't get uh, the functionality that we need. So working global standards um, is is where I've headed to. Um, and some specific things that I'm um, working on, things like... Thank you. A um, uh, little time check there. Things like um, a, an open standard file format for exchange of audio description to take all, to go all the way through the workflow from scripting the text that is going to be spoken to mixing the audio or pre even potentially presenting the audio description to screen readers or other assistive technology. So that's one thing that I'm working on. Another one is um, live subtitle contribution formats. Um, the, uh, just to finish, though, um, one thing that I think is going to be really interesting, and maybe we can discuss it a bit more, is how we talk about usage data. I could talk really easily a minute ago about how much of our output has subtitles on. I cannot talk really easily. And generally speaking, across the board, we cannot talk really easily about how many people use them across all devices and things. And there is a, there's a tension here. There's lots of different needs that's complicated. You can't just say to people, hey, this number of people use it, therefore, you know, this is your product decision, because the number might be small, but it doesn't mean it's an unimportant group of people. Um, so, but I, I think we need to start thinking about how we get the message out in the appropriate way to drive behaviors right in organizations that maybe don't think, oh yeah, I should be subtitling everything, I should be audio describing everything, just to understand the value better by getting the right kind of data expressed in the, the right way. And I, I'm saying that in the spirit of beginning a conversation because I don't think it's obvious um, how to do it and what the best way is and it needs to be it needs to be discussed. So I will stop there. Thank you. Just playing devil's advocate, I mean, I, I obviously I work for the RIB, so a user organization. User data, I understand the significance of it, but isn't accessibility meant to be provided regardless? Because it, it, is, it could be that users aren't using the service because there is no accessibility. Uh, yeah. So, so tell the people who are providing the content that give them data that says, hey, your competitors, they do do this. And here are their, here's their data. You don't. Or, you know, find a way to, to express that, to show them that the value is what I'm trying to say. Because, yeah, that they might be well be losing out. We, we, I mean, I can say that on some, on, on I think, some games and some children's genres of television programs, people are watching or playing with like 30, 35% or so with subtitles, something around that number. That's loads. Does that mean that if you didn't offer that, 35% of people switch off, maybe not, but maybe 15 would. Mm -hmm. That's a big audience. We're talking about millions and millions of people, potentially, depending on the content. And if that message is not clearly understood by the people who need to go, oh, yeah, my business isn't only about the eight, the people who can see and hear in every environment, those magical beasts that don't really exist, um, then, yeah, we should help them to understand that that is the case. Right. Thank you, Nigel. And next, we've got Sarah Herlinger from Apple. Um, I, I talked about the Dolby Atmos mix. Yes. And um, Apple's got that. Yeah. Uh, it, we're really excited about that with our new content. So um, quickly, my name is Sarah Harlinger. I am the Director of Global Accessibility Policy and Initiatives at Apple. And I just I would throw out, since there are a lot of people still standing at the back, there are seats up front. If anybody would like to sit down, 
you can come forward. If you don't want to be the person who walks in front of the entire room, I get that as well, but figured I'd make sure that you're aware. Um, so, uh, I, I think to, to start off just giving a little bit of background on, um, accessible content at Apple. Um, you know, this is something that's been important to us for a long time. Personally, I've held a lot of, or I've worn a lot of hats at Apple in terms of the jobs that I've done. And one of them was as the product manager across all of our product lines, which, um, got me into the realm of, of being able to help work on, um, how we, uh, surface accessible content. And it started with, um, just having the hooks within the operating system that if anyone had accessible content, we would be able to surface that. So if a provider put closed captioning or audio descriptions in, you could turn on a flag. Um, and those would show up. And we started doing that almost 10 years ago as, as a sort of baseline in what we did. And then, um, I worked with our iTunes team to surface that information within iTunes. So if you, if there was material that had closed captions, you know, when we go out and we worked with all the major studios on getting movies and, and such, that if those were closed captioned or had audio descriptions, that we could surface that up so an end user could know before making that purchase, was that accessible to them? And they could search on, show me everything that's audio described um, in the store right now, you know, things like that. And then um, at the same time, sort of putting in the, the, um, the terms into what we send to our studio partners to say, hey, as long as you're sending us um, you know, this latest blockbuster with subtitles in Japanese and French and German and all these many things, please also provide us with a track for closed captioning and a track for audio descriptions. So um, really trying to hold our partners accountable to the same level of support that we wanted to be providing um, and make sure we were getting as much accessible content in as possible. Um, but the latest is Apple has also moved into the realm of original content of our own. Um, and we just launched, um, on November 1st with a, a group of both, um, you know, tel- series as well as individual movies and documentaries and things. And, um, we are providing all of that material in over 40 languages in closed captioning. Uh, we're doing nine languages of audio descriptions. Um, with that, because we are the content creator and the distributor, we are not uh, in, kind of beholden to the same uh, regional distribution rights and, and rules that s- other content may have. So we will actually be providing that globally into the over 100 countries that uh, Apple TV Plus um, is available in, um, meaning that if you are... Uh, an English speaker, but you want to get Italian audio descriptions while you're traveling in Japan, have at it. You know, you can pick whatever one you want. Um, but the last key piece of this, as Sonali had mentioned, is um, we are also delivering this in Dolby Atmos. So um, we, you know, one of the things that we saw as we were looking at how people were creating audio descriptions is quite often... Um, the person who creates those AD tracks kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, dumbs down the, the AD and provides it in only 5.1 or stereo, which is not as good of an audio mix. Um, and our view was, you know, for a community, 
for whom the audio is so centrally important to experiencing this material, why would you want to give them an experience that was not the same quality as everyone else? So um, assuming your system allows you to to get Atmos, um, we will, uh, that would be the first thing we would try to deliver to you. And if your system doesn't, then we figure out the sort of step downs from there to give you the highest quality that your system will allow for. Um, but I'm really excited. I feel like this is a, um, something that we, you know, when I look at, at our work and kind of accessibility being a core corporate value of Apple, um, this is something that I've, I've been working with the team. They've been really excited about it. And we, you know, we've, we've done a lot to really ensure that that's something that we can provide across all of the shows that we produce. Just one question, Sarah, just about the languages that you choose for audio description. How do you select the languages? So you mentioned the nine languages. Is it uh, based on your past experience of iTunes, where iTunes is being used, or uh, is there other data available? Um, it, it's there's a few things we do look at, and some of that is is uh, usage and where um, you know sort of what are the what are languages that give us the most kind of bang for the buck, I suppose, in terms of of those that are are most um, you know, global, uh, as well as a number of other things that we look at. Um, but we're trying to provide it in in as many languages that we possibly can that will reach as many of our users. Um, as I said, we are going to, into a hundred plus different countries. So it's kind of how do we make sure we hit as much as we possibly can do. That's great. Thank you. Jane Lawrence from ITV. Thank you. I feel like I could sing. Um, I can. Yeah, but I won't. I won't. Um, so, oh no, shame. Um, so I'm Jane Lawrence. I'm head of specialist broadcast services for ITV. And that involves quite a number of things, but part of my role is to report back to Ofcom uh, on our access service um, quotas and targets, etc. We also work very closely with Sonali and her team at the RNIB, and I also monitor our viewer impacting access service regs. So firstly, I thought I'd just quickly run through ITV's policy on access services, um, very similar to the BBC's, no doubt. Um, so ITV is really committed on ensuring our content is accessible and available to all, both on linear TV and on VOD. And we all know linear TV as our competitors um, are subject to statutory requirements on access services in the UK. And from our point of view, we believe a coordinated policy across our channels is necessary, both operationally and strategically, in order to maximise benefits to the viewer. Moving forward, we're completely aware that the UK, the UK government, following Ofcom's recommendations published last year, is looking to introduce specific access services targets on VOD platforms. And this is to be announced early next year and will be coming to force in the coming years. ITV aspires to provide its audience with the best possible access services across our family of channels on those platform and on those platforms where access services are available. We also recognize the importance of collaboration with our stakeholders, such as the RNIB, and we very much appreciate their 
advice and guidelines. So before I update you on our VOD services, I thought I'd just quickly update you on what's happening at ITV with our access services at the moment. So we're currently in the middle of insourcing our access capability. Um, our visually signing is already done in-house in signpost in Gateshead. So we're bringing in our AD and our subtitling and that will all come under the umbrella of signpost. As of today, we have nearly finished our AD testing and subtitling for ITV4 and ITVB has already been brought in-house. Um, we're in the middle of currently testing all our regions um, in the ITV main channel. Our sonographers will be based remotely and they'll be using Dragon Speech Recognition and Screen WinCaps subtitling software. And for the AD audio describers, we'll be using Advantage software. At ITV, we're very excited about bringing our access services, all of our access services in-house. Um, we'll have more control and we look forward to looking at what we can actually do with maybe or hopefully providing AD on any of our, or some of our late delivered programs such as Love Island. But I'm not promising anything for next year quite yet. That is really important. We need Love Island with your description, please. Everyone yes. seems to mention Love Island. Yes. So um, I'm not promising anything, but I have mentioned it already. It's just good news. So um, updates in VOD. Uh, for 2019, so since last year, ITV now provides AD on iOS as well as Android. So we went live with AD on iOS in May of this year. On both platforms, we now deliver approximately 31% of AD hours, which equates to 29% of our programs. So for us, this is a huge step forward. Android and iOS take up almost 100% of the market, mobile market share, so we're doing really well in this space. But we're also aware that mobile accounts for approximately 30% of access to the ITV hub, so with another 30% from browsers and 30% through connected TVs. So consequently, we recognize that more needs to be done with respect to browsers and connected TVs, and that's where our focus is right now. We're aware that they're not singular challenges, especially as they use different technology for AD on mobile. And it's worth noting that each of these services is an individually bespoke build so it's not an insignificant amount of time and resource to do each of these. So we are delivering incrementally. The four main browsers and connected TVs have many more differing devices, which may or might not support AD. In combination with all our other technologies, we are currently supporting. But given the technical complexities involved and the resources needed to meet this challenge, Full coverage on connected TVs and browsers will be much longer in the coming, but we hope to make progress in the coming months and years. In helping ITV prioritise our work in this area, we want to work with the RNIB and other relevant stakeholders to help us identify the most popular platforms in terms of the number of users so we can focus on delivering AD on these platforms. 
And finally, in 2020, we are looking at rolling out AD for BritBox, as well as holding a focus, a focus group with our AD users with help from our audio describer editors and from the RNIB. Thank you. You, you answered BritBox. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought it in. Yeah. I? That was going to be my question. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, sometime next year. No dates at the moment. Right. Okay. Thank, Thank you very you. much. And next we have Abhira Maturi from Amazon Prime Video. To you. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Abhi Maturi. I'm a product manager for the accessibility program at uh, Prime Video. And I'm part of the larger accessibility team, which includes user researchers, designers, design technologists. And I'm also part of one of the accessibility teams which focus on Prime Video. We have many other accessibility teams at Amazon who work on devices, who work on Amazon Shopping, our Kindle, etc. So I'm part of a very small team of the larger accessibility program at Amazon. Uh, my work at Prime Video is twofold. So one, I look at our customer needs, uh, accessibility needs, and I try and work on features and improvements to our service uh, to meet their needs. On the other hand, I'm also, I also try to be an advocate for our customers. So I look at what everybody else at Prime Video is doing, what features are being developed, and I try to look at how do we make sure that accessibility is part of their work that they do. Similar to what Sarah mentioned, how do we, when we get content from our partners, how do we ensure that we get them with audio descriptions? How is that? How do we make it just a normal process of uh, our work at Prime Video? Um, this is quite by accident how I started working on accessibility. I joined Prime Video a little over a year ago, uh, and I joined the uh, user experience team because I loved movies and TV shows, and I wanted to work on user experience. And when I, on day one, my boss said, great, you're here, we want you to work on accessibility. So I asked, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> and since then, it's been a journey for me trying to learn about what the area is, what does accessibility means when it comes to streaming video or videos in general. Uh, be trying to learn as much as I can from the people around me and from our users, and at the same time, moving our service in a way that helps our customers. So I'm really happy this is my first TechShare Pro to be learning from everyone around here. I'm also really happy to talk about some of the improvements we made in Prime Video. So in 2019, we made a number of improvements to our service when it comes to accessibility. I'm just going to read out a short list. For example, uh, we now have audio descriptions worldwide. That is over hundreds, hundred countries. We previously only had it for the US and UK. So I'm very happy about like expanding the access of audio descriptions. We've also enabled audio descriptions on many more new smart TVs and living room devices. We've already had it on on many of our Android apps, on our iPhones, on our website, and uh, many of our Fire TV and Amazon devices. Uh, We've increased the content we had with audio descriptions. We have nearly tripled the number of content we have with audio descriptions in the US. We now provide the most number of movies and TV shows with audio descriptions, just beating out iTunes recently. Uh, we've also doubled our content in the UK, uh, and we keep, we are going to increase our pace of how we add more audio descriptions. 
Uh, right now, for all Amazon originals that we produce, we also release audio descriptions when we when we release the original content. Uh, at the same time, what I try to focus on is how do we make sure customers can easily access the titles with audio descriptions. So, for example, we now have AD badges in in our detail pages so that customers can know if a title has audio descriptions before they start playing and realize, oh, this doesn't have it. Uh, we've also tried to have easier ways, like easy URLs to get to these titles. So if you go to amazon.co.uk slash video slash audio descriptions, it's a long URL, you can get the list of all the titles which have audio descriptions. Similarly, on our apps, we're trying to add in easy links where we have the entire list of our catalog of audio described content. Uh, there's still a long way to go with adding more content, making them more easily discoverable and more accessible. But I'm really happy with the pace at which we're going. Just just one question before you pass the mic. You've got some very unique challenges because you acquire a lot of content, which is with lands on Prime. Uh, how easy is it to actually acquire content? So when you're commissioning, let's say you're, you're taking content from the BBC or ITV, how easy is it to acquire the access features with it and to repurpose them for your platform? Because I think the, the two challenges, one is actually acquiring the access features and then repurposing them for your own platform. Because the versions are quite different at times, I'm assuming. It is quite a challenge to acquire the access services because, again, as a worldwide service, there's a lot of uh, licensing requirements that we look at, at. So it's not as straightforward to repurpose assets, say, from our US catalog to the UK catalog. And we have a number of partners. So some partners provide the audio description files when they provide the the uh, the video, whereas some may, may not. What we are trying to do is make sure our processes are robust enough so that we ask them, when they provide a video, we ask them, hey, you need to give us all the files with it along with the audio descriptions so that that's just a new way of acquiring content. That's just a normal way. Uh, and make sure it's not and at the same time, we are trying to go back to them if they don't provide it and say, now you have you have a lot of content on our service that don't have audio described files. So why don't you provide them now? It, it has other challenges like we need to work with them. There may be an additional delivery fee and stuff like that. But we are trying to ensure that uh, that is our new working process. Okay, Thank you. So we've heard from the service providers and now on to Mariana. Uh, <laughs> it's been trying to pass on that mic forever. <laughs> I am aware that you must all be quite hungry, so I'll try to be as entertaining as possible to distract you from, from the impending uh, hunger. Uh, so my name is Mariana Lopez. I'm a senior lecturer at the Department of Theatre, Film, Television and Interactive Media. Our name keeps getting longer and longer uh, at the University of York. And uh, what I'll be talking very briefly is about a project that concluded a few months ago called Enhancing Audio Description. The um, project was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK, and it was led by the University of York, uh, by myself and the co-investigator uh, Gavin Carney, 
and had a research assistant based in Anglo-Ruskin University in Cambridge that is Christian Hofstadter. But we were also really lucky to work uh, with different uh, stakeholders, including RNIB. Uh, we work with audio description provider Sensor Media. We work with Dolby. Um, we work with ITV. Uh, we worked with screenwriter Lisa Holdsworth, um, charity campsite, and uh, with Howard Bargrove that uh, is, is very well-renowned dubbing mixer running a sonorous post. Um, and the idea of the project was that we wanted to look into alternative formats to audio description for accessibility for uh, film and TV uh, drama uh, for visually impaired people. And the main concept of the project was that if accessibility is about acknowledging diversity and different needs and experiences, we can't just be offering one type of accessibility to visually impaired audiences. We should be thinking about what the shortcomings of the system are. And by the system, I mean an audio description format that is a third-person narration that tells us what's happening uh, on screen through verbal descriptions. And was there something that we could provide as an alternative? And I always make sure I emphasize that this isn't about replacing a format that many, many users are very, very happy with, but is what about those that for which, for whom audio description is not ticking all the boxes. So what we pr proposed as I'm a sound designer myself is to use a sound design, uh, creative approach to accessibility where we looked to reduce verbal descriptions through three basic methods. One of them is looking at the addition of sound effects to the original soundtrack of a film. So just going to give you an example to, to make it a bit, a bit clearer. Um, we worked with, um, adapting a short film um, and that film had in uh, the final the final scene quite quite an important moment um, a girl running across a beach uh, looking very distressed people chasing after her uh, but the editors of the film uh, and the director had decided that it was going to be a musical moment so all you can hear is the music now visually impaired audiences of course found that impossible to follow without any accessibility issues, uh, features, sorry, because the only thing that they could hear is the music. And it's very difficult to tell what's happening if you can just hear the music. So something that we proposed uh, to work on with sound effects is, well, let's reduce the level of the music. Let's redo the mix for an accessible version. Let's add those footsteps of the character running through uh, the, uh, the beach, the footsteps of uh, the mother and doctor chasing after her. And let's add some atmos, so some ambience, some seagulls that tells people they're in the beach. That made a huge difference for uh, audio description users from a focus group saying, we have no idea what's going on. They were like, oh, okay, yeah, I, am, I completely follow that. And that is actually really, really easy to apply to creative workflows of filmmaking because most of the time those decisions on how to mix that clip won't be done until the very, very final stage of filmmaking. And those footsteps would have been recorded in Foley. Uh, those Atmos tracks would have been uh, captured by the sound recorders. So the only thing that we need to do is create a version that redoes uh, the mix to make it more accessible and reduces the need for verbal descriptions through an added audio description track. The other important thing that we looked at is uh, spatialization, and we worked uh, with binaural audio. So binaural audio, in very, very simple terms, terms is the rendition of 3D audio through headphones. Um, and the idea with this is that you could spatialize the soundtrack in a way that you were providing um, information that, again, could reduce the need for verbal descriptions. For example... If a character enters to the right of 
the screen and walks to the left. Instead of someone describing what's happening, we have the dialogue panned from right to left because it's binaural audio. We can also do back to front and any other combination that you might want. That, of course, implies that we need to break the conventions of mixing for uh, drama, which is that the dialogue is uh, tied to the center uh, channel. But when we tried it with our visually impaired users, they actually really loved it. They found they could now that that film or TV program came to life with the movement of the characters. Another thing you can do through spatialization is giving a sense of items that are in the set. So just just an example, let's say uh, there is a fireplace at the um, rear, uh, the right surround of um, the, the shot. You can just have the sound of a fireplace located there. And there is a reduction of the need to have a verbal description of how the set is constructed. And that means that the soundtrack of the film can come to life. We also acknowledge that you can't do everything, provide all the information through sound effects and spatialization. Some things like gestures are very, very different to convey in that way. So we worked on a system of first-person narration where the main uh, character of the film provided some clarifications on content. And this created a very poetic, uh, very immersive experience for the film uh, because suddenly you have those uh, gestures translated into uh, and explanations of the emotions that that character was feeling. Um, our model implies that uh, accessibility is incorporated in uh, the production and post-production and even pre-production of filmmaking and television making, uh, which means that that first person description would be actually written by the screenwriter uh, and not added uh, to the end of the process. Our project was very, very user focused. Everything we did, we tested. We asked uh, uh, visually impaired users what they thought of our ideas, invited them to critique them, and uh, we played the film that we were uh, we wanted to turn into uh, an enhanced audio described film. And they took those ideas to our research and then did the testing again. And so, what they thought about it. The really great news for us is that well, we compared the results. Uh, um, description to kick in. So we are really, really proud of the results and we're planning uh, a second um, application for funding uh, to be able to continue our research. So if anybody's interested in collaborating, we really want to see this uh, taken out of the research lab and into the homes and very, very happy to collaborate if anybody's interested. That's my plug for please give me money. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mariana. That's that I think I was really, really impressed with the project and I hope you get the next round of funding. Thank you. Yeah, I'd support the plug, please. If there's anyone here. Give me money. Yeah. <laughs> For the project. Okay. Um, it's a, let's move on to the questions. I think one of the questions that relates quite closely to what you've just presented is about, so it's on the screen right now. So many people, particularly the creative types, seem to really struggle with the concept of audio description. How do you simplify to the point it's really understood? 
Now, uh, from RNIB's point of view, what we can do is try and create awareness, run campaigns on what audio description is. Campaigns are uh, designed towards sort of different stakeholders, towards the creative types at times, but also towards end users uh, and the service providers. But I think if we really want uh, audio description to be understood at the creative level or at you know at the grassroots level level. We would need broadcasters to be involved or content producers to be involved. What are the chances uh, of embedding accessibility at the very start of a production? Nigel, do you want to take that one? Because Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, there's a contrast here in my mind now between what we would do for, say, a web page or an app where we would just require that it would be built to accessible standards and we would tell them what those standards are and we say, just go do it versus what we do for our broadcast content or our programs I should say because it's also on-demand content where we t we've taken the view that we're introducing something which is a bit different to what the content producers are normally used to doing and we're increasing the scale. I said we do more than 20% of our programs. If people aren't from the UK they don't know we have quite a lot of different television services um, and 20% is a lot of content. I can't remember the number of hours, but it's it's really a, a great deal. And so our approach to doing it has been, for economy purposes, to outsource that to a specialized provider who knows how to do AD well. So that's great. They know how to do that. They give a consistency of experience to the audience. But it doesn't really quite answer the question. And I think sustainably, in the long term, you might think, well, perhaps the deliverable ought to be the program with all of the accessible components, whatever they are, and uh, it's the content producer's job to make that. Otherwise, they're not really fulfilling the commission. Um, but I, I don't see that happening particularly soon. But um, it feels like the only way to get there in the end, in a way. I've been asked that question for a number of years, and I've always said... Uh, I don't have any contacts with Spielberg, but if I did, I might reach out to him and ask him to champion the cause because if he were to made, make a film uh, that's fully accessible, I think that might start a trend. If you have any contacts. Do you want to hear something funny? <laughs> I, I, I don't have contacts with Spielberg, but someone once in a talk told me, and I have never been able to get a reference for this, so if someone has it, it would be very useful, that he is particularly interested in accessibility. Fantastic. Exactly. So, someone that's expert in the topic told me, but uh, never replied with a consistent reference as to where, where she got this information from. But I think he's out there looking to fund our work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll keep looking. Is there anything that you'd like to add, Sarah, to that? Or uh, Jane and Abby? <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, you know, it it is a hard thing, particularly with AD. Um, well, to take even a step back on this, with closed captioning, there are a lot of different ways to do it, and and even you know, without an R, with an Apple's work, you know, we have a product called Final Cut Pro, which is one of the um, video editing software tools that is used to make major motion pictures. And one of the things we added in about a year ago was the ability to do closed captioning directly into Final Cut Pro. So I saw a question flash up earlier around how do you do it and ensure that synchronization still stays in and all of that. That's part of 
what we did when we built this as a piece of Final Cut was to make it really simple and easy so that rather than having it be this sort of separate track that someone produces, you're just you can just type in along the way as you're listening to whatever is the the um, audio running. And then if you decide to cut a clip, it just automatically cuts that area and, you know, your cl- captions follow along with synchronization. Audio descriptions are as much an art as a science. Um, you know, it, it's to, to do good audio descriptions and, you know, hearing about your project and, and thinking through all of the different things that are important for someone to get context is a, a, a complicated process. And I have such huge respect for people who, as their profession, do audio descriptions. So I don't think it's as easy as saying, ah, oh, is there some magical way to, to make that happen? Um, you know, who knows? Maybe one day AI will solve this for all of us, but I, I don't know that we're anywhere close yet. Um, but I think that, you know, the more we can get people to, to consider AD at the start of their process, you know, for us by saying we just are, we're planned to AD everything we do, it brings that into the conversation really early on. You know, it, it becomes a part of, of the, you know, the, the discussion of how something, um, even how the show might end up being created in terms of where, how does AD, and I'm not by any means saying I think that somebody's sitting in a room deciding AD at there as, as the primary factor for this. But I think we, we start to have those discussions of where does, how does AD fit into a show where there's a lot of, of dialogue that's moves super fast or, um, you know, just what does AD mean in this? And by having that as a baseline of the production, you can at least begin to have those conversations in a way that that didn't happen in the past. I can talk about uh, some of the things that worked at Prime Video to just increase the awareness awareness of AD within our organization. We start when I started off. I I did not know what AD was, what audio descriptions were, because I've never used them. Uh, I've realized many people at Prime Video were also similar, so they have never used them. Uh, so what we started doing was, uh, for any new show that could come out, that came out, we would have a pre-screening of the show, but then we would have it with audio descriptions. So this would mean people who are interested in it, in our organization, would come watch the show, watch it with audio descriptions, and be like, oh, so that's what this is, and now I get it. And now they start thinking about when they are, they may start thinking when they're thinking about a new show, how does audio descriptions fit into this? Uh, this is, I think, what helped us just increase the awareness of that. Since you've got the mic, Abby. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I spoiled a question for you. Will you be able to turn on uh, closed captions and audio description using voice control on Fire TV? That's definitely a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I Right now, I don't think we support that, but we definitely want to do that in the future. And we want to... So Fire TV is very well integrated with our Alexa voice service, right. which enables, which is which already makes the service more accessible. So customers can just search for a movie, say Alexa, play, play Jack Ryan or play a movie on Prime Video, which makes it a lot more easier to find content. But there are many other features that we want, want to add on top of it, like 
play Jack Ryan with audio descriptions mm. or find me all the audio described movies on the service turn on captions audio descriptions we definitely want to add those features in the future yeah sounds good i know we're talking a lot about quality but just taking a step back on the quantity as well because uh, yes quality is very important but quantity is slightly more important because quite often when you speak to audio description users they say you know if there's nothing available i'll just take what what's there right now so do you think are you i don't know are you led by legislation because quite often we've got we've seen that legislation triggers uh broadcasters or content providers to start looking at accessibility i don't know how it works within your respective organizations are you led by innovation or what's available in mainstream uh, at rnib we're quite agnostic on whether it's legislation it's regulation or whether it's uh, you know you decide to make sure you know that's what your users need and they prefer so is there anything you'd like to add well um historically the bbc has led here we we started subtitling i think in the late 70s or early 1980s and there wasn't any regulation and the pattern that we tend to see is that we might introduce a service um or we might follow along with other people who may have introduced a service or the idea of a service and if we think that's a really good idea and it fits with our charter requirements then we may well go ahead and start doing that and that is what we've seen um happen uh and then later on the pattern has been that that becomes part of regulated service and we work very closely with the regulator as well to make sure that um we don't get put into a position where we can't actually do what the regulator is demanding of us but also we're not even that question doesn't arise because we try and be ahead of the curve um so uh i would say regulation really for me it's the thing that kind of bakes in the expectation and says right you can do this it's a good thing to do keep doing it at least this level and don't slip back for some reason so it's very useful from that perspective but it doesn't tend to drive us um you know we we put subtitles on iplayer from the but you know day 1 when it launched in 2007 there's no regul there still is no regulation for on demand content for us but that doesn't stop us from doing it levels the playing field at least because then it encourages other providers who are not providing to start looking at accessibility i wonder how does it work within uh, so let's say for itunes or within apple plus i is is there legislation uh, not sure if there is legislation in the us um well i mean i there is there i don't believe there's legislation right now that covers digital media there are some things through the cvaa that cover broadcast um but that's one of the things about this for us is is you know accessibility is one of our six core corporate values and so because of that the decisions we make tend to be about what we want to do to do best by our customers and not specifically by legislation you know the conversations that i have with our apple tv plus team you know compliance isn't a word that gets used in those conversations it's about the fact that we're a global company creating global content and and at the heart of what we do we're excited about what we make and we want everyone else to be excited about what we make you know we want people to 
love a show and want to watch it and want to wait till every Friday when that next episode comes out and, and be able to, to, you know, um, take in that content in the way that works best for them. So our goal is to keep pushing the limits, not to sit back on this, you know, uh, country standard says X, Y, and Z. We want to blow that standard out of the water everywhere we can. Um, and I think when you come at it from that perspective, you just make better products. Same at ITV. I mean, yes, we've got the legislation for linear TV channels, but we don't just meet the targets. We try and blow them out of the water. So very much like the BBC, you know, for subtitling, we've got nearly 100%. Um, for AD, again, there's that target of 10% that Ofcom have um, set, but we go above 20% on our main channel and all our other channels um, higher than that. So it's about what the viewer wants and needs from us. Yes, we are led by legislation, but it's not the sole purpose for us to do all these great things. Uh, it's the same for us as well. Uh, we have a tenet that is, although we, we do look at legal requirements, that's just a starting point for us. And we are driven by innovating for our customers and trying to know what makes, what meets their needs. So most, we spend a lot of our time trying to understand what the customers want rather than trying to understand what the law is and trying to comply with that. Also, if you want, our goal is to make accessibility like a movement within the organization. And if you say compliance, people are not going to get excited about it. <laughs> so you have to, it has to come from innovation. Yeah, because I have been told, I mean, uh, there are times we're told, uh, can you send us a letter of complaint, please? Because a letter of complaint from the RNIB would actually trigger conversations internally because there is no requirement around this. So at least if there's a letter of complaint. Um, anyway, um, I'm, I'm going through questions here. I've, I've, there's just lots of questions. Um I think someone's talking about guidelines. Are there any comprehensive documents about audio description guidelines, especially for film and uh, let's say a sitcom, for example, because you said sometimes it can be poetic. Uh, I think Ofcom has some standards. Uh, they've got some, not some standards. They've got guide, guidelines and best practice. But I, I think BBC has got some uh, guidelines as well. Internal, I've seen some documents. Can you share those with me? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think, I think, um, so one of my products is the BBC subtitle guidelines, and it's noticeable that there is not uh, an equivalent for audio description that, uh, that I publish and maintain. And why not? Well, one of the reasons why not is that actually it's not straightforward for anybody other than our main provider to provide AD to us. There's, the technology is not open. It's not cheap. It's the, the way to integrate that into our content flow is not straightforward either. So actually the, the documentation of the, the editorial requirements goes to our audio description provider and we work on that with them. And that works great because that does all of our audio description. I would really love to ha be in a state in, you know, a year's time or two years time when we can say 
here's an open standard way to provide audio descriptions so that people making content that isn't covered by that contract for our broadcast programs can also contribute audio description in. And at that point, we can create a document like the subtitle guidelines that says, here's how you do AD. Um, and then I'd love to publish that, but um, I'm not. we're not at the stage yet because nobody can do it anyway. So this, although it would be maybe somewhat useful to the world at large to know what our editorial guidelines are, there isn't anybody who can use them to contribute content with it. So it's sort of not, not a high-priority product for me right now. I think from ITV or the gentleman who does it for ITV or who will do it for ITV and has been doing it, at a different company i think it's there are certain guidelines but they're not set in stone i think it's yeah it's it's you know you, when they do describe these programs it's not about your own personal point of view how somebody's feeling it's about what you see and um so they do take a lot of time over writing scripts and um making sure that everything you know is what the uh vision impaired would like to hear or you know make makes this program understandable fantastic i remember when i joined rnib so my job for the first year was to accompany my boss to to the audio description providers and actually watch films with uh, that are being produced with description and so uh, yes i can't obviously name the films for confidentiality but i used to watch all the films before they had come out but by the time they came out, I was so sick of them because I'd watched them about 50 times. So, um, yeah, it sounds like fun, but uh, it, 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 it's, it, it is a task. It's, it takes a lot of care and a lot of attention to detail. What is it that you can describe? Because the time is so short. And someone has very helpfully tweeted, not tweeted, sorry, it's on Slido. So regarding guidelines for audio description, Netflix has some. And if you are on Slido, the link is right there. So I think that could be very, very helpful. And we'll wrap it up for now. Thank you ever so much to everyone on the panel. A very warm thank you and hope you enjoy the rest of the conference.